This is a special Walker Cup episode from the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. The finest amateurs from Great Britain, Ireland, and the United States will face each other on May 8th and 9th at one of the most iconic golf clubs in the world. We know the teams, but a certain mystique surrounds the venue, Seminole Golf Club. In the next few weeks, you'll hear stories from Seminole members, former Walker Cup captains, USGA officials, and other special guests. These are the Seminole Sessions, a preview to the 2021 Walker Cup match. And now, your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome again to the Seminole Sessions here at the Back of the Range, a series of preview episodes focused on the 2021 Walker Cup to be contested on May 8th and 9th at Historic Seminole Golf Club. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. My guest on this episode is Bob Ford, the head golf professional at Seminole Golf Club. In this episode, we spoke about his incredible run as head professional at Oakmont and Seminole. And Bob didn't exactly spend all of his time selling merchandise in the shop and giving lessons on the range. Bob has played in three U.S. Opens and 10 PGA Championships. In fact, he's the last club professional to make the cut at the U.S. Open, which he did in 1983 at his home course, Oakmont. We spoke a bit about Seminole, what we might need to look out for as we lead into the Walker Cup, and we shared some stories along the way. Let's get the Seminole sessions started once more. Bob, you're at the back of the range. How are you? Ben, thanks. Yeah, I love love your work. I love your podcast. So I appreciate you uh, giving me a shot at it. Uh, well, I I think uh, if there was a qualifier for it, you would be exempt for a lifetime, sir. So I think uh, I think you're okay. But I really do appreciate you saying that and and joining me here. You know, we're we're trying to get things ramped up and uh, talking about the Walker Cup, and of course, it's at Seminole Golf Club, your 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 home right now. But um, we're, we're going to pass over a lot of your uh, achievements in the game. Um, you've done a lot of episodes of other podcasts, and, and your resume is very well known. And we'll touch on it just a little bit. But, you know, a rite of passage here at the back of the range is every guest has to share a little bit about of how they actually got into the game of golf. And um, I was hoping you could share that with, with listeners for me right now. Well, Ben, I will. You know, I followed my mother and my brother around, uh, you know, public golf courses, uh, pulling her cart. She was an avid player. She wasn't a good player, but she was an avid player. And, uh, you know, after a while, she let me smack a couple with her clubs. And I was like 12 years old. And, uh, you know, right away, just just fell in love with the game. Um, From there, my brother was uh, older than me, seven years older, and he uh, caddied at Overbrook in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, he'd come home and tell me who he caddied caddied for and, you know, some celebrities and some great players. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I'd like to caddy. So when I was 14, I started caddy. And uh, I ended up caddying at Aronimic when my dad joined Aronimic when I was in high school, I think probably for me and my mom, but because he wasn't an avid player either. And uh, my brother was off to school and, so I caddied there and kind of grew up playing there through high school and, uh, you know, just obviously fell in love with the game and decided at that point that I wanted to be around these people that were around golf for probably the rest of my life. 
So from there, uh, my folks moved back to Pittsburgh when I graduated high school. So I did all my summers through college uh, back in Pittsburgh where I didn't know anybody. And, uh, you know, I was in college in the early 70s, 71 to 75, when, uh, you know, smoking pot was the thing to do for everybody. And <laughs> How dare uh, you? <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I guess, I guess I was a bit of a nerd. I never wanted to do it because I, I think I'm probably an addictive kind of a guy. And if I did it, I probably would have done it every minute of every day. And so I stayed away from it and I just hit golf balls after school, you know, after my classes. And when I got back in the summers, my dad had me working in, the, I'm not going to call it a steel mill, but he was in the steel business and they had fabricating plants. And I worked in his plants uh, my summers uh, through college. And uh, after work at four o'clock, I'd go to the golf course until dark. So I really fell in love with it. Uh, the Open was at Oakmont in 73. And uh, I had worked the Open at Marion in 71 as a volunteer. So I, I wrote Lou Warsham, the pro there, a letter and said, I'd like to volunteer. And he actually hired me to work in the golf shop, um, you know, the week before, during, and after the Open to help him out. And so that was my entree to Oakmont, my entree to Lou Warsham. And uh, graduated college and went down to see him. He was the pro at Coal Ridge in Fort Lauderdale in the wintertime. Sure, yeah. And uh, asked him what he thought I should do with my career. I obviously wanted him to tell me that I was good enough to play and go play the tour. And he said, why don't you come to Pittsburgh this summer and work for me? And I'll find out whether you're good enough. And I'm like, wow, that'd be cool. So, you know, I kind of, as from a club professional standpoint, I, I kind of took that job on, you know, number one, wanting him to tell me to go play the tour. And number two, uh, if I failed at making the tour, I felt like at, at Oakmont I would, um, you know, meet enough people that somebody would hire me and golf would be, a, you know, an asset for me uh, in my business career. And, you know, if I didn't make it golf and I'd sell steel or insurance or, sure. you know, something. So, uh, you know, it worked out a little, bit, little differently for <laughs> me than that, but, uh, but I don't want a mulligan. That's for sure. I, yeah, you're, that's uh, no, that's a that's a hell of a journey and a way to, and uh, I think everything ended up uh, ended up pretty much okay. You you mentioned college. You went to the University of Tampa, played uh, college golf for them, and you know over the last several months, you've seen a lot of these, whether they're Walker Cup hopefuls from the U.S. squad or the GB&I squad, or actually eventual members of these teams. You've seen them uh, popping into Seminole here and there, playing practice rounds college golf is obviously a little bit more mainstream now than it was in the 70s you know thanks to the golf channel and to um, you know golf stat and live streaming services but what can you tell me about your college golf experience in tampa in the 70s <laughs> well <laughs> it was a lot different than it is today as you suggested and uh you know university of tampa in that era, did not have much of a golf team. We were focused on football, and uh, we were quite a Division II football school, sending a lot of guys to the NFL. And, uh, you know, golf was, uh, you know, it just wasn't that important. It wasn't that important to me at the time. But, uh, you know, so we, we were pretty stinky. And, you know, I, I, the reason why I went to Tampa, I wasn't really a very good amateur player, but uh, – I thought I'd go to a school in Florida that, um, you know, was sunshine all the time and I could work on my golf game. And, yeah. Um, so that kind of worked. And I wanted to play on a team that I could play on and not, you know, 
be the eighth man and not get to play in tournaments because I, I needed the experience. So I, I wasn't going to go to a Florida or Georgia or not that they would have me, but uh, you know, I didn't want to sit on the bench. That's for sure. So, so from that standpoint, it was a great experience. Um, you know, like I said, I really wasn't very good, but you know, I guess my senior year in the Tampa amateur, I shot 65, 65 and lost to Gary Coke in a playoff. And believe it or not, at 14 under for two rounds, which was that's brutal. Pretty, pretty incredible. But you know, it was a it's been a fascinating relationship with Gary since then. That, you know, we had that common bond and what he's done with his career, and, and we've crossed paths many, many times. He's played in every pro member at Seminole since we started. Sure. So we, I, I get to see him every year, and he keeps getting to tease me about uh, you know whacking me in the playoffs. So. But, uh, but that's really what led me to go see Lou Warsham and ask him, you know, geez, you think I'm good enough to try to play, which, you know, I was good enough to try, but obviously right. I failed, failed and failed. And, uh, and then he retired and I uh, had an opportunity at 25 to stop playing and take that job. And I did. So that's where we're at. Yeah. Well, we're, I definitely want to talk about Seminole and the Walker Cup, but you just mentioned Oakmont several times, your your previous place of employment, employment. You were there for 37 years, and so you're the head there. You're currently the head now at Seminole, and I know you, you did both uh, did both jobs uh, simultaneously for probably, guess what, about 10, 15 years? Was that the, about the right amount of the overlap? I think it was seven 17 not that i'm counting not that not that <laughs> okay so right around the same um but you know there are golf clubs and then there are country clubs so by name oakmont is a country club seminole is a golf club and you know some people may know the difference but some probably don't think much of the difference in the naming as someone that was a head pro under both what are maybe some of the subtle cultural differences between Oakmont and Seminole because the standard golf fan really just sees Oakmont when it's on TV for a U.S. Open or they really don't see much of Seminole on TV and they don't really know the culture behind both. Is it possible for you to describe maybe the cultural differences between those two clubs? Yeah, you know, if I could, you know, to the layman, I would say, you know, a country club is a full service uh, operation, you know, at at, uh, Oakmont, we have breakfast, lunch and dinner. We have a swimming pool. We have a swimming team. We have a. We used to have tennis and a tennis team. Now we've gotten rid of that because just you know just kind of fell by the wayside. And we have shooting for the guys in the winter time and paddle tennis that's popular. So, you know, it's a full service country club, uh, and we have housing there. You know, for overnight guests too. So that, that that's the best way I can describe describe you know the difference between a country club and a golf club. The golf club. And particularly a place like Seminole, I mean, we only do lunch. We don't do breakfast. We don't do dinner. We don't have overnight accommodations. Uh, we only have golf. Uh, we close at 6 o'clock. You must be off the property, which is unusual, but it's just golf. It's very high concentrated on just being golf-centric. I haven't said that, Ben. You know, Oakmont, because of the Opens and, you know, the golf uh, aptitude of the members there, and they – you know, whether they join having that aptitude or they get educated once they, once they do join, it's, it's a very golf centric place as well. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the major focus is on golf and, uh, but they do offer all those other amenities. Sure. 
one of your highlights, obviously, of your your career was you were you're the last man to make the cut at a U.S. Open as a host professional of that facility. You did that in 1983, tied for 26th. I just I still can't fathom the idea of a a host professional playing in a U.S. Open and then running out to the merchandise tent and stocking sweaters and shirts and hats. But that's exactly what you did in '83. Um, how has the job changed over the years? That I guess you know that's kind of prevented that from ever happening again. I mean, I'm guessing you have such a love of your profession. You would like to see someone do that again. Uh, I hope it happens again. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it was unusual. Uh, obviously Ben, it was in a different era, you know, the early eighties and, uh, it, it is one of my most fond memories. I, I will tell you, I probably was more excited. I qualified over at Sharon golf center in Akron, Ohio, and you know, about a two hour drive home. And I think I got home in about 30 minutes. <laughs> I was, I was say, yeah. <clears throat> I just couldn't have been more excited, uh, you know, to have done that. I, I did play in the open in 1980 at ball my first year as a head professional at Oakmont. And, uh, Bob Ross was the professional there and he had qualified for that open as well. So, you know, I didn't think it was that unusual at the time. Obviously, since then, I've learned that it's it was quite a feat for both of us. But he was an incredible mentor to me. Uh, we, in 1980, you know, we played, and then we went in the merchandise tent. I, I, I shadowed him for the week. <laughs> and uh, sadly, they sent me home for the weekend, but I uh, went back to work. But, uh, you know, it was an incredible experience. I, I don't, you know, the hats that we wear as a golf professional, um, it's, you know, it's, it it would be shocking for somebody to do that but uh i hope it i certainly hope it happens yeah well before we leave pennsylvania and head back home to south florida you know i had a couple pennsylvania boys on the podcast previously and you know they've they've played in a couple of these uh you know pennsylvania opens and state amateurs things like that do you do you know nathan smith or sean knapp by chance do those names ring a bell at all you know, I, I vaguely can remember the names. Uh, they sound like a couple guys that uh, we took down in the Palmer Cup matches. Uh, my partner and I sent them home after about 13 or 14 holes. <laughs> That's them. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm glad you, you recall the names because I was given an acronym by uh, Mr. Knapp, uh, K-O-A-C-P, he says, is what he, uh, he he calls you, the king of all club professionals. And I told him I would try and try and work that in. And, man, you, you were perfect right there, just smacking him down a little bit. So that was <laughs> that was right on cue as if you're looking at my notes. I love it. Well, those uh, two are two, you know, national USGA champions and, you know, best players to play out of Western Pennsylvania in a long time. And, uh, and great guys and great fun guys. They don't take themselves too seriously. Although Nap Nap could be on the edge of that, but, uh, <laughs> we've, uh, we've just had a ball, you know, he came home from playing in the amateur at Newport and Tiger whacked him in the quarterfinals. And, uh, he, you know, I used to watch him hit balls a lot and came to the club and, uh, had, had this, you know, some kind of writing on his golf bag. And I got over a little bit closer to it. It looked like an autograph. And I said, I said, well, what do you got on your golf bag here, bro? bro? And he said, uh, that's Tiger Woods' autograph. I got him autographed after he beat me. 
And I, I said, are you kidding me? Did he autograph your knee pads too? Oh. My, Jesus God. <laughs> I, I don't know if he did, but uh, that's, uh, man, that's perfect. Yeah, I think I remember him saying that. And I, even I was kind of shaking my head. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if that's <laughs> probably not the best way to go. Um, well, that's great. So you, you started at Seminole in the year 2000. And, you know, as someone that's, you know, been around the game at, at your, you know, the highest levels. You obviously, just like you said, you'd, you'd played in three U.S. Opens by that time and 10 PGA Championships, I believe. And, you know, I'm sure you knew the history and legacy of Seminole. And, you know, we just spoke about the differences between a, a country club and a golf club. And this might be like a silly question, but did you have any reservations or moments of pause about accepting the job at Seminole? I mean, did you immediately know it would be a good fit for you? Well, you know, I had a, a number of members uh, from Oakmont take me to Seminole in the wintertime uh, when I'd go down there to play in January and February. So I got a feel for the culture. I got to meet pr- pretty much all the key people. And uh, and the assistant there at the time for Jerry Pittman was a, a young man named Andrew Shuck, who's now the head professional at Cherry Hills in Denver. And he uh, alluded like the, that last winter, uh, before Jerry retired that, you know, they're talking about bringing you down here. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, you know, never really crossed my mind that I was being considered and the job never opened up and I never applied for it. But, uh, you know, Tim near was, uh, the president elect to be, and he called me and asked me if he, if I thought Oakmont would allow me to do it. And I said, well, let me check with the boss first, my wife, Nancy. There you go. And, uh, she uh, she was all for it. I was surprised, but she was all for it, and she did a terrific job raising our kids and doing the two jobs and back and forth. And and uh, when I went to the Oakmont board, they they were all for it and uh, just incredibly supportive. Uh, you know, throughout my career at Oakmont, the people at Oakmont were just just incredibly generous to me, and can't say enough about all of the people through the years at Oakmont. But uh, you know, when I got to Seminole, then I was apprehensive. I was, uh, I was petrified, quite frankly, because, you know, these were the captains of industry. These were just another, you know, they were the, the leaders of the free world at that time, you know, in the, in, particularly in the Northeast, but from all over the country, really, and now from all over the world. But, uh, but I, so I stood on the first tee for probably, I don't know, three months trying to meet everybody and watch everybody hit. I was blown away at two things. Number one, how well they gripped the golf club and, and hit off the first tee. They all put the club on the ball beautifully. I was, you know, not that they were all scratch handicappers, but even the 12 handicaps really knew how to, you know, swing the golf club, which was encouraging to me. And, you know, the, the real high profile guys that I would have thought would have been difficult to deal with maybe, uh, could just couldn't have been nicer. And all they wanted to talk about was golf. Right. And, uh, at that point I knew that I could handle the job. So three or four months in, I got, I got pretty confident and pretty calm about it. And, uh, believe me, it's, uh, I hate to even call it a job. It's just such (laughs) such an easy place to be. Well, you, you're talking about your first experience. So my my first experience on site at Seminole was was really special for me, and I actually did not even hit a golf shot. Um, so believe it or not, one of the probably the best day I think I've ever had doing this podcast. I spent a morning with Mister Nicholas recording an episode in his home, and then that afternoon came to Seminole 
and sat in the locker room and had a beer with Spider Miller and Downing Gray of all people. Oh, well, you didn't have just one. Well, now, well, now we don't. Well, see, but since I get to edit the podcast after we're done, I can say no. You're right. We did not have just one. But I was looking around and saying, okay, this day. First of all, we. I mean, this day is. How did this day happen? This is incredible. And just sitting there, I'm like, I'm looking at two. Walker Cup captains, you know, uh, you know, USGA champions. And for me, I was kind of blown away. And for you, well, that's kind of a common occurrence at, at Seminole. There are multiple Walker Cuppers and USGA champions that are around the property. And with the pro member, you have the greatest tour players in the game that stop by at least once a year. I'm sure there's has to be at least one time where you're kind of looking around in awe of thinking, how did I get here? How is this possible? <laughs> well, it, it, well <clears throat> you, you experienced uh, that, which I, I have almost every day there. I mean, between, between Oakmont and Seminole, I, I don't think, I think I've met everybody in the game. I really do. I mean, every, every, um, everybody that has a high position in the game has been to both of those places. And I've been lucky to be able to host them and, and, uh, you know, get to know them and call them friends. And, uh, that's, that's been just an incredible gift that, uh, that I've, I've been given by, we call it working at those two places, but sure. hardly a job. Yeah. Is there a, is there one instance or any anecdote that you can think of off the top of your head that like, I'm sure everyone's racking, thinking about all the best players in the world right now, but is there one that you can think of where you're just like, Oh my gosh, is, is this like, is this real? Well, I will tell you know, because I, I'm, I'm as old as I am, you kind of remember your early years quicker than you do your later years. But uh, at, at Oakmont, when I was 19 and the 73 U.S. Open, uh, you know, I was behind the counter in the pro shop. It wasn't a big deal back then. And, uh, you know, Lou Warson was a famous, uh, you know, one of those great legends of the game and, and uh, U.S. Open champion himself. And, you know, Jack Nicholas walked in to the counter and said, I'd like to say hi to Lou Warsham. And, and uh, right behind him came Arnold. And he stood at the counter. They exchanged, you know, uh, niceties. And uh, obviously, they go back to the 62 Open where Jack took care of Arnold in the playoff. And uh, But there, those two are in front of me. Lou comes out, and they're talking like, you know, they're great, great pals and old buddies. And I'm like, are you kidding me? What am I doing here? <laughs> You're just trying to not get in the way, I guess, right? Yeah, so that 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 moment I'll never forget. Nice. Um, you mentioned the level of play at Seminole. I, I think I have my stats kind of close, but about 200 single-digit handicappers and probably about 50 that have played in the USJ Championship. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, it's a pretty staggering number, but yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. And I guess my... I'm just curious, you know, just but any other club, I guess it's pretty easy to see like a 15 and 20 handicapper struggling with their bunker play or their chipping technique, and you can walk over and lend a hand. But like you just said, you got USGA champions, you got Walker Cuppers, and I'm sure that you can offer up some wisdom that'll help their games. But what's it like trying to work with those kind of members at a club where, I mean, these are some serious accomplished players. How do you give a swing tip to someone that's playing the Masters? <laughs> well, that's a good call. And Downing Gray was, uh, you know, low amateur in the Masters, uh, you know, in, in the uh, Butler cabin with Jack and Gary Player. I think those guys were, you know, winners and runner up at the time. And, uh, you know, with, 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 you know, but that, you know, as you age, you need some help. 
Sure. And, uh, you know, I worked a lot with Downing Gray and he just couldn't be a, a neater guy and a better gentleman and great storyteller. And, but, uh, he, you know, his game needs a little help once in a while. And every, everybody likes to tinker a little with their swings and with their equipment. And, uh, you know, it's just fun to be part of that. Yeah, the last time I was there, I saw Vinny Giles on the putting green with like T set up, basically like he's doing a putting drill. And I'm just shaking my head. I'm like, why are you doing putting drills? What are you doing? And no, he's working on his game. He's tinkering. Oh, he works hard. He's extraordinary. He, he's one of my idols. He's 78 years old. And I'm telling you, I, 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 well, so I knew him when he was 68, 58, 57 or eight years old. And and, you know, he won the senior amateur yeah. when he was maybe 68 also. And uh, just the, the level of game that he still has at his age is extraordinary. And, he's, and he works hard at it. Yeah. He's, uh, he's an amazing guy. You, um, one of the awards I know you're proud of that you've won twice, actually, is the PGA Merchandiser of the Year. And you won in an 85 and 97. And, you know, I've, I've snagged a couple things out of the pro shop at Seminole. And, you know, I think... I saw a couple of guys going out of there with like multiple bags of stuff. And it was surprising. It's not a massive, as far as the size and square footage, it's not a massive shop, but every single square inch is utilized to its potential. And whenever you see someone wearing a shirt or a hat or visor, it says Seminole, it immediately kind of screams, okay, this guy or this gal is connected and knows someone. And it's kind of a badge of honor to wear that, uh, wear the Seminole brand on a, on a shirt. And does it ever surprise you at the volume of, of souvenirs that some of the guests roll out of there with? I mean, at some point, it is it is just a shirt and a hat that's going to kind of get ratty in the closet at some point. I mean, no disrespect, but it, it, I mean, you know, everyone's got shirts that are back in the, the back of the closet. But what's the what's the biggest haul that you've seen where you're just like, look, I appreciate what you're doing. It's great that you're ringing the cash register, but are you kidding me? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, well, it, uh, you know, as you know, those, lo uh, you know, Oakmont and Seminole, those logos are valuable, you know, valuable to people. People love to wear them. That You know, it says I played Seminole or I played Oakmont or yeah. I played Augusta or Pine Valley. And uh, like you said, it's a badge of honor and it's, it's a phenomenal uh, introduction for conversation, you know, whether you're on an airplane or you know, wherever you are, when you see somebody that's that you have a connection to that club and that logo, it's it's a great conversation starter. And uh, but you're right. I mean, we've got I've got you know some non-member customers that get to play there and they come in, they drop a thousand or two like it was nothing. And I'm like, <laughs> did that guy just spend what I think he spent? <laughs> but you know, you gotta you know forget yourself. Now you gotta buy something for your three sons, and uh -huh. you gotta buy something from your three. Um, not employees, but your customers, and and sure. you know that it adds up. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw a guy with two bags, and I think I think one of your guys in the pro shop said that it was a it was a two thousand dollar bill right there, and I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So the Walker Cup is is heading to Seminole uh, in, in May, and you know Seminole has, certainly has a mystique about it. You know, opened in nineteen thirty, and. You know, basically, Donald Ross was able to drain a swamp right off the Atlantic Ocean and turn it into one of the best golf courses in history. And it's never hosted a professional tournament, despite obviously the pro member has a field that you know tournament directors would drool over. But were were you ever surprised when the discussion started and the, the, you know, it was finalized that the Walker Cup would would be at Seminole? Well, uh, surprised a little bit, 
but knowing Jimmy Dunn, Jimmy Dunn is a guy that uh, just makes it happen. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, he felt strongly that he felt like Seminole owed it to the amateur game and to the USGA. You know, we had all those Walker. We have, I think, nine uh, Walker Cup captains, eleven former players, and nine former PGA or uh, USGA presidents, members at the club. Oh, plus, really? uh, Mike Davis is a member of the executive director and. You know, it was a, it's a, it was a great fit, but I have to tell you, Ben, that uh, at Oakmont, this was the twenty, yeah, it's the twenty-one Walker Cup. Probably in fourteen or fifteen, I went to the president at Oakmont, Bill Griffin, at the time, and said, "Bill, we ought to make a pitch for the Walker Cup." You know, Mr. Phones really started the matches, and you know, it's very strange that we never hosted it. Uh, something that you know on our resume that we don't have, we should host it. And so he put a letter into Mike. He was great friends with Mike. And uh, when Mike decided, to, got the invite from Jimmy uh, to go to Seminole, he called me and he said, I, I don't want to put you in an uncompromising position, being that you're working at both places. You know, are you, you, you like okay with this? I'm like, you know, number one, I appreciate you asking me. I don't, I've got really very little skin in the game, but I, I love, love it to go either. I win both ways. So. Sure. But Seminole is, particularly now, is a much better fit for it because it's really the only championship that it could host. I mean, it could do the Curtis cup and the Walker cup and that's about it. And, uh, and you know, Oakmont is blessed with, uh, as you know, all those championships. So I thought it was a great fit. Jimmy, uh, really felt strongly that, you know, Seminole owed it to the game and not everybody agreed with him, but, uh, you know, he's the, he's the chairman and he calls the shots. So, we're really excited about it. the members are excited about it. we've done a you know as a result of it we've done a lot of work to the golf course and the clubhouse and eliminated the pool not really because of the walker cup but uh it's going to be a great uh, spot for our members to hang out during the championship and we're, we just can't wait it's five weeks away it's you know it's five years in the making for us I, I can't imagine, you know, normally when you have a membership at a club that gets a, a, a major championship or a PGA Tour event, you know, the membership's obviously excited, but you don't see a lot of members that actually played in a, played in the tournament that's coming. And for, I can't imagine what guys like, you know, uh, like Downing Gray and, and um, you know, Buddy Marucci and, and just, you know, Mike McCoy, they must just be over, over the moon with this. It just must be incredible that they have all that history playing in one and now it's coming to their club. Well, they're also proud, and, and Nathaniel Crosby, you know, being a former player and an sure. amateur champion and being the captain, I mean, can you imagine, you know, he'll just be walking on clouds at that time. He'll so be tears in his eyes the whole time. <laughs> for sure. It's just going to be an incredible weekend for us. Sadly, it just goes too fast. I know. How how do you want the I, – I know, like, we're talking today on, on Friday, April 2nd. The reason I'm just mentioning the days because it is – down here in South Florida, it is windy and it is blowing – and I know that that's kind of what you guys wanted for that charity match with uh, Ty, um, with Rory and Ricky and DJ and, and Matt Wolf. But these are amateurs, and this is a very rare instance where amateur golf is going to be front and center on network television. With while there will be a PGA Tour event that weekend, it's not a major. Um, you know, there's really not anything that big that's going to be competing against the Walker Cup that weekend. How do you want the course to play? I mean, I know that the USGA is going to be doing a lot of the setup, but like, how do you want Seminole to be showcased that people can see the club, see the course, but also these amateurs can really showcase their talents as well? 
Well, I'll tell you, Ben, you know, watching these, watching these kids warm up and I actually have gotten to play with a few of them. Uh, they're not going to have any trouble with a golf course. Okay. I think, I think that we would love to have a two club win, which just would be perfect. I think a four club win would be disaster. Yeah. Uh, I'm delighted that it's a, a match play golf course and you're not going to hear any scores. You know, you'll hear how many birdies guys have and, you know, the pro member this year, you know, Freddie Couples had eight birdies. Ernie Ells had eight birdies. Uh, you know, we had some guys, uh, you know, play beautifully. So we want some good golf, uh, as you know, because you played the other day. It's a second-shot golf course. Uh, the driving zones are pretty generous, and length is never an issue anymore in today's game with these kids. And, you know, just want it to be fair and see some good iron shots. Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, and the, the other unique thing is that this is going to be the first time, like I said, that people are maybe are going to get a good look other than in pictures. They're going to really get to see Seminole, and there's a limited amount of tickets. They, actually, the tickets sold out in two minutes on uh, uh, yesterday, which was incredible. But I think it's going to be about 2,000 spectators each day, but it kind of reminds me a little bit about what they do the last day at the Crump Cup at Pine Valley. They let the public come in for the final day and, and take a look at the place and, and see some fantastic golf. I'm sure you'll have other obligations during the Walker Cup, but if you were to lead a tour around Seminole, what are maybe some areas of the course that you would want people either that are watching it on TV or they're there uh, in person? What are some areas that people should pay attention to? Well, I would tell you, you know, the greatest uh, setting out there and place to spectate is like uh, behind four green, but you're on top of the dune up there. You can see across the whole golf course, 11 green, uh, 15 tee, you know, back up in there where the restroom is. You just see down the golf course and see the ocean from there. And that's extraordinary. And then the ocean holes, you know, so I, I would kind of hang up on the, on the dune uh, on the early holes. And then I'd work my way down to the ocean and watch them play the ocean holes. It's uh, really, really gorgeous. I know I'm definitely looking forward to being there, and uh, and I'll get you. Um, oh, I forgot to ask you: true or false? I'm not sure if you can answer this, but if you can, great. True or false? Jerry McElroy, Rory's father, is a member at Seminole, and obviously he's rooting for the GB and I team really hard. Has he? Do you think he's excessively helped the GB and I kids by bringing them out to Seminole multiple times to get a feel for the course? Or is that is that pretty fair, or do you think it's getting a little excessive? No, that's false. No, I mean, those, those kids didn't need Jerry to come out. You know, they they were welcome to come play anytime. We we gave both teams carte blanche all, all year once they made the team. And uh, but Jerry's, you know, he's a big supporter because Rory played for the GB&I team. And uh, I'm actually uh, going to play with him tomorrow. I'll give him a little shout out about, uh, you know, all the work he's done with these kids. But oh, yeah. uh, no, he's, he's the best. He's a great guy. Well, we will uh, we'll let you get out of here. I really appreciate the time, and I I, did, I know I mentioned that you uh, you had retired from Oakmont, but um, you know your exit at Oakmont was during the U.S. Open, and your exit at Seminole is here at the uh, the Walker Cup. This is going to be your final year as the head professional at Seminole, and um, I guess you know a lot of retirees like to kind of pick up a little bit of a extra gig or you know a little summer internship or just something to keep busy. <laughs> Are you still going to be the official starter at the U.S. Open? 
I am. I'm looking forward to that. It's really a really a fun week for me, Ben. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, until they kick me out, I'm going to keep doing that. What What's the key to that? Because I mean, the the voice. You know, every every everyone has their their different style. Um, but what's the key to uh, to kind of you know reducing the nerves from these guys in those like two or three minutes before their names are announced? Because everyone knows you, so I'm sure they're not ignoring you. They're coming up and saying hi. I'm sure these two-minute conversations all day long have to be fascinating. Well, they, they are, Ben. You know, I, I tell you, you know, working the tournaments at Seminole, the member tournaments, you know, get, getting to visit with our members for a couple minutes uh, during those tournaments is really something I'm going to miss because, you know, it's a, a neat time. And, and uh, you know, Mike Davis asked me to do this because they were taking turns uh, after Ron Reed did it for so many years, they were having the executive committee members take turns each year. So there was a new guy every year and yeah. guy that people weren't familiar with. And he said, I really want somebody that's going to be there. that guys know that's why I want you to do it. And uh, I said, God, I'd love to do it. And when those guys come up, uh, I think it's my nature, you know, to calm them a sense of calm because I, you know, I'm not nervous. I know I've known them, you know, it's kind of the, Hey, JT, how's it going? And, uh, hopefully it calms them down. I'll tell you my first year, this is cute at Aaron Hills. Okay. Um, uh, you know, it, actually JT, I think it was on Saturday. He came up in some pink pants and a white shirt. Yeah. That's the day shot uh, 63, I think. Yeah. Well, that great shot on the, the yeah. last hole, I think it was five wood or three wood. He's just so good. It's incredible. But, uh, I said, partner, you better play good wearing those pants. <laughs> there, and, uh, there you, go. you know, that kind of stuff just eases them, you know, breaks the ice, it gets them calm. And I think that's my job and, and I enjoy doing it. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you're still doing that. I, I'm a little, I do have a little bit of a bone to pick though, because, you know, I feel, you know, I, I bumped into you a couple of times at Seminole and now we've, we're concluding this podcast. I think, you know, you and I were, we're getting closer and closer and then, you decide to retire and leave Seminole. I mean, how do you think that affects me, Bob? I mean, did you ever, don't you see how how that might adversely affect me and my chances of playing Seminole in the future? Benny, I I will tell you what, I've known you well enough now. I just want you to keep checking your mailbox for the invitation letter. (laughs) Every day. (laughs) I'll I'll, I'll do that. And uh, and I I won't get my hopes up, but um, Bob, I really appreciate uh, the time and just being an incredible host uh, of everything great about the amateur game and, and all the great offerings of Seminole. And I know you're very proud of the club and very proud of um, uh, what's about to happen, just the, the pinnacle of amateur golf. So look forward to seeing you there. Thanks so much for being a guest here at the back of the range. And uh, I, I will see you in a few weeks, sir. Okay. Yeah. Sounds great, buddy. Thank you. Take care. And there you have it. Special thanks to Bob Ford for joining me here at the back of the range. Don't forget, the seminal sessions will continue, so make sure you're subscribed in Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All previous episodes are available at thebackoftherange.com. We'll see you next time, here at the Back of the Range.